There was a very moving article in the paper yesterday. I'm going to share some of it within the, the Times newspaper. And the heading is by Janice Turner, one of their um, journalists, commentators. I don't think that she is a woman of particular faith. I could be wrong, but I don't think particular, but she's just commenting something. The headline is, COVID is a reminder that no one is invincible. COVID is a reminder that no one is invincible. And then underneath the header, the superfit and wellness gurus might try to convince themselves their bodies can survive anything, but they're deluded. And the story, the context is that the story comes out of a, a, an article that appeared on television on Sky News, a fellow name of John Ayers, or Ayers, E-Y-E-R-S. I don't know whether any of us saw that. He was 42 and very much a fitness man. I'm going to read just part of the article. His shoulders are powerful. His chest is, in commas, ripped. He raises a muscular arm and a hopeful thumbs up. And I actually went online and there is a photograph of him in hospital like that. Yet John Ayers is strapped to a ventilator. His organs are failing. The photograph begs the question, how can COVID take such a magnificent man? Because, said his grieving twin sister Jenny McCann, he had only one pre-existing health condition, verticomus, belief in his own immortality. In Instagram pictures, Ayers is scaling a rock face, hiking over fells, camping in wilderness, oiled and pumped for a bodybuilding contest, finishing an Ironman race. He swam 2.4 miles, cycled 112 12 miles, then ran a whole marathon. What should he ever fear. Ayers at 42 refused to be vaccinated or even to wear a mask, said his sister, since it's not his body, that invincible self-hewn body, would just bat the virus away. Interesting enough, later on she comments a number of things, you know, about the young and the way that, you know, the, the way, that's the way nature makes them so unthinkingly brave, the best soldiers, so on and so forth. It goes on to say, he goes on to say, in his book, The Denial of Death, the American anthropologist Ernest Becker argues that most of human activity and culture is a defense mechanism against the knowledge of our own mortality. The only creatures who know we will one day die, we engage in, verticomus, immortality projects to distract us from the inevitable grave. An obsession with fitness promises that by your own slavish effort, self-denial and training, sweat and pain, you can barter your odds with God. Articles in Exercise Magazine speak of ending or even reversing the aging process. Get your body fat down to a single figure so your solid muscle and hard bone, no softness or weakness left. By eating cold-pressed wheat grass or living on meat alone, like primitive man, you take charge of your health, cut out big pharma and verticomus western medicine. You cure yourself. If you want to go online, Google it. You'll find more story about this poor man. Obviously, we feel deeply for his family. He was a, he had a, a, he had a child. He was from Southport. And certainly the photographs are sad to see somebody who was so hale and hearty and then, as I say, subsequently died over a period of a month. But in many ways, as I read that story... That is an illustration of what Paul is saying here in Romans, in the book of Romans. 
an illustration of the dangers, the fatal dangers, when we deify anything, whether it's ourselves, whether it's our fitness, whether it's some program or philosophy or idea, when we deify that and make that the token of our worship and our belief that that will save us and indeed cure us of that ultimate enemy death itself, whenever we do that as individuals or as a society or as a community, then we're on a dangerous and ultimately deadly road. Paul here, as I said earlier, is writing to the Romans. So we've made reference last Sunday, we're not going to go through all that again, of the Roman world, the ancient world. Many of us have been in holidays in parts of that area in the Mediterranean particularly. And we've seen the statues, we've seen the buildings, we've seen the way in which that Greco-Roman world particularly deified the, the, the specimen of humanity, particularly the male form. But not just that. I still remember going with Gregor and Colin when they were quite wee. Gregor would actually have been very wee. And with Elizabeth around the museum in Naples. And one of them, I don't know whether that was you, Greg, asked why this man's bits were chopped off. They had fallen off either because of an earthquake or um, because of the, the destruction of Pompeii or because later on in a different civilization it was deemed inappropriate for a man's bits to be so clearly seen, especially when usually they were well, well proportioned. They deified the human body and what the human being could be. They deified Roman rule and the power of Caesar, who was increasingly, especially during the first century, increasingly accredited with divine authority. That's why, for instance, it became so challenging for a Christian to say, Jesus is Lord, that ancient saying that hangs over this church building, Sunday after Sunday, day after day. To say that ultimately meant you were saying that Caesar wasn't Lord, that Caesar wasn't the divine being, that Caesar wasn't ultimate authority. And many Christians, especially into the second and third century AD, faced the ultimate consequences of that, of martyrdom, as indeed Christians in Nigeria and elsewhere in the world do the same today. And Paul here is opening up for us, yes, a very controversial subject. In some ways, I'm very conscious we are online. One of the issues of being online is one has to be very careful what one says. But nonetheless, Paul opens up for us very real issues. And actually, I hope anyway, as we read that, we could see how it speaks so clearly into 21st century Western society. In order to get a grasp on this, I'm going to turn back, and you'll probably know already what I'm going to say, to the book of Genesis. If you have your Bibles, turn back to the book of Genesis, to that well-known story, but fundamental story about the fall in the book of Genesis chapter 3. And we've, in chapter 2, we read of men and women being created in the image of God, man, and then a suitable helper being found, women. And then we're given instructions. Instruction given to Adam in chapter 2, verse 16 of Genesis. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. 
And then in chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Pause here. Notice, right from the very beginning, the serpent casts doubt and questions what God has actually said. Okay? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Because that's not, of course, what he did say. So he distorts the truth. The woman says to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it. She adds to it what God said. So one takes away from what God said and one adds to what God said. You, we must not touch it or we will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. He plainly contradicts what God had said. And then he goes on to say, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He plays to our pride. We can be like God. We can be masters. We can be the sovereign. We can be the Lord. We can be the arbitrator and decider of everything that is. We can rule and reign in the vastness of all that is. You can have it says the serpent. And then we read, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and notice what happens. As soon as their eyes were opened to good and evil, they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Instead of running about like the Wains and the Bairns, quite happy, you know, don't bother any outward accoutrements, they suddenly became aware of things, and that became a way of shame and of hiding. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you, that longing for intimacy and connection? And the man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Fear comes in. Shame, fear, fear comes in because I was naked. The whole sexual side of things, our sexual identity of who we are. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I command you not to eat from? And the man said, it wasn't me, it was the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It wasn't me, it was her fault. Blame. The blame culture. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then the Lord goes on to speak about the curse that's going to fall upon humanity, and then warning them that the ground in creation itself is now blighted. And then picking up in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the idea even there of, of, of an animal in a sense is life having to be given up in order that they could be clothed, pointing towards the one who would give himself up. And we are clothed in his righteousness, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like 
one of us knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground for which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. That death that entered in and that separation from the abode of God and the abode of humanity established. That's why that chapter, indeed the book of Genesis, is so foundational to our understanding of life and of living. And Paul here amplifies in a sense and explains that. Let me read again. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The serpent suppressed the truth. He sought to distort it. And we have down through the years and in our present day those who are so-called truth-tellers but are actually truth-slayers. The propagators of philosophies and various forms of humanism that declare that God is dead, that humanity can be free at last from the tyranny of religion. I'm offering it, they say, this philosophy, that idea. You can have it. You can have it all. Down through history, human beings and philosophies that they adopt, create, are perpetrate. Invariably, lead not to freedom and life, but tyranny and death. And as the serpent was subtle, and sly. So today in our contemporary society, the subtle influences in the media, and I just thought last Sunday of John and Wilma, we were speaking after the service, and John very movingly stirred in his own heart, I could see that, speaking about, yes, we had all these clever people up in television telling us what we do and shouldn't do and all the rest of it, and then he said, very movingly, John said, but why don't they tell us about God, our only hope and refuge, and the rock of ages? But of course they don't. The subtle influences in the media, in education, and how people are trained and equipped for things, and yes, in the whole counseling profession, those subtle influences that suppress the truth rob God of who he is and sell a lie that we can be like God. And that exchanging, he talks about that. Verse 21, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exposed the glory of the immortal God for men, images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. The biggest lie of all, of course, is that we don't need God. We don't need to have a focus for worship. The well-known saying that I'm sure many people are aware of, this saying, when people stop worshipping God, or at least have that God awareness that perhaps past generations did have in this country, it isn't that they don't believe in nothing, it's that they start to believe in anything. It's not that they believe in nothing, it's that they believe in anything. And we've seen that during this past crisis. Some of the weirdest things put out on the media 
and so are not put out in the media, but, but we're told about on the media. All sorts of deceptions. Also including the fact that if you're fit and do all the things that that poor man did, then you can beat the virus and you can turn back the clock and you can have life immortal. We're told that we can fix things, that humanity of itself can sort out. Just look at the disaster of Afghanistan. Look at that disaster. We were told with good intention that we could break the kingdom of God here on earth with the great advances of the welfare state, and it brought great blessings, and yet our society today is more divided, socially unjust. There's food banks, there's poverty, Where is that kingdom today? Bankrupt, broken, fragile, and failing. We could go on. Of how lies, the angel, serpent, Satan, an angel of light, peers to offer so much, so attractive, so pleasing, like the fruit on a tree, so pleasing to the eye. But its taste is bitter. And Paul says that because of that, our thinking, verse 21, their thinking becomes futile and their foolish hearts are darkened. In verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. A lack of wisdom, that craving. We live in a day where there's access. I told Ellen right at the beginning how we can Google things and find out things instantly. There is more information at hand than there ever has been. Elizabeth and I watched, watched a program. I think all we ever do is watch the telly, by the way. We watched a program a month or so ago now, just about all of that, and it showed you this place, and I think it's Nevada, in the United States, this huge site with these, well, all I can say is these machines where information, every time you Google something or send an email or buy something online or, or transmit in any that kind of way, it's stored, it's guarded, but it's stored in there. More information stored in there over the last 10 years than the previous, well, since the beginning of time. Who has access to that? How can that be used? Have you ever bought something online? Or even thought about something online? I know of a situation, they have Alexa in the house, and they were talking about buying something the very next minute on their phone, up comes the offer from Amazon for it. I don't know about you, but that's creepy. And there are those and those with an agenda who feed that in futile ways. And when it means futile, it means it actually doesn't bring what it's meant to deliver. I don't mean the Amazon delivery to your house that you get and you find it doesn't fit or it doesn't suit or it doesn't what it will look like online. I mean it's futile because it actually does not meet the deepest needs of the heart. If only we could have more, we say, and we get it and we're never satisfied. If only we could have this thing or go to that place or experience that pleasure, we will have arrived and we get it and like the fruit of the tree, we taste it, we throw it aside. What's next? Craving for more. Appetites never satisfied. Yearnings and longings that can never be met. And when we try to impose them on someone else to meet those longings, they collapse under the demands and the pressure and the strain. 
and even worse, Paul tells us. That creates an atmosphere where some at least condone and encourage that which is wrong. Notice again what Paul says, verse 29, God gave them over to depraved mind. A depraved mind is where you start to say what is wrong is right and what is right is wrong. You turn everything upside down. And you delight in seeing people not only imbibe that, but suffer the consequences of that. And so look what it says. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things but also approve of those who practice them. Now, that's not true of everyone in Britain in the 21st century, but is that true of some within Britain in the 21st century? Is it? Yeah. Malevolent influences, servants of the father of lies, not the God of truth, who delights in seeing the damage it does in people's lives, who get off in seeing that. It's as blunt as that. And the fragmentation of families, the breakdown of relationships, the lack of trust, integrity within business life. Remember many years ago, David Clark who moved down some time ago with his wife down to the, the coast, telling us way back, long before the just about, well, 2007-8, but that kind of period, before the financial crash, saying how he noticed then the fact that in the bank, let's be honest, the day would have been the banker was, the, you know, you could trust the banker and the lawyer and the teacher and the minister, the kind of, you know, and of how that degree of credibility and trustworthy and everything was being eroded. Those who made money what others suffered and who delight in that. Our thinking becomes futile and depraved because we exchange truth for a lie, because there are those who would suppress the truth and present something which is very contrary to the truth. We don't need God. You can be like God. And lastly, how that impacts on our sexuality. Now, Paul here is very open and very clear about the biblical understanding of sex and sexuality. Made in the image of God, male and female. Genesis, again, affirming that man and woman should be connected together. I'll just read that back in the book of Genesis, that foundational thing created. And you'll notice that when we've had weddings here, I have always said, especially in the recent years, said that as a Congregation United Free Church, we affirm that Christian marriage is between a man and a woman. And so in Genesis chapter 2, we read that is why a man leaves his father and mother united to his wife, his wife who is his helper, his helpmate, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame in the sanctity and purity of marriage and commitment to each other. They were one. But of course, that's not the view of many within our society today. You may or may not have noticed that um, June was Gay Pride Month. 
And there are those who would advocate not just that, but many other ways of living and lifestyle. And ultimately, there's a logic to it. You see, and I, as I said to somebody on Thursday evening, I've got to hand, hold my hand up to this as well. I'm sorry to say this, but everybody who's older. We delighted in being able to choose. So we could choose our home. We could choose what color we had our home in. We could choose the type of job or career we might have. Choice, we were told, especially in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, was the sign of an advanced society, the benefits of such a society, a Western society. There was more to choose from. We've never had it so good. But ultimately, we have so elevated, not necessarily all of us, but we so elevated that, at the end of the day, if we're also told that we can be like God, What's to stop us choosing not just the color scheme or the kind of car we have or the food we eat or anything else, but choosing our own identity? I appreciate for some of us, including myself, that's hard for us to get ahead with. But if you can choose everything else and you can be a master over any other decision you make in life, that in itself is a lie, but you know, you could be anything. I'm sorry to say, teachers, but I believe your children are encouraged to believe they could do anything they want to do, be anything they want to be. That's a lie, isn't it? <laughs> but if that's the philosophy of the age, then why don't you choose to be something different? And you can make up the rules as to what defines that difference. And so we're living in a day where the whole trans issue, forget about the gay issue, the whole trans issue is becoming an increasing real problem for Christian teachers and counsellors and guidance teachers. Programs and television, I have to, I'm sure I've confessed this before you now, I watch Hollyoaks. I know. My excuse is, I don't even know where that is, well don't worry, it's one of these soaps. My excuse is I started watching it on a Monday night when Elizabeth and Gregor were down at Connect and I so disliked Reporting Scotland, the news programme, that I was wanting to watch something else where I did the dishes. And that's, of course, a story of sin, how it starts off, doesn't it? It leads us astray. But I can also say one of the reasons I watch it, and you do get hooked in these soaps, is because it does explore, however weirdly sometimes, it does explore real issues. So there's a storyline at the present time of this girl who's coming out gender no, she's a girl, biologically. She's a girl, but she's nothing. And what that means, I'll tell you next week when I follow the storyline, the next few episodes. And yet that's a sign, the sign, of a wayward and godless world. And I might well get into trouble for saying that online, but who, now, God alone knows what's right. That's a sign of the brokenness of our world. There are some people, a relatively small, very small actually, number of people who generally struggle with these issues. Of course there are. But you see, what Paul is saying here, and I'm conscious time's going on, but it is important. What Paul particularly is saying here is about those who are choosing. Now, I'll explain that just as a close. We went to Ephesus Philippi when I did that tour with the Bible Society many years ago, an excellent tour, especially for when we're looking at things like this. We went to Philippi, and we walked down into Philippi, down a broad avenue, and there were these, and you can still see the houses standing beside, three, like townhouses, basically, three-story townhouses. 
And the guy told us, not really really fancy kind of houses. Oh, yes, he said, that's where the merchants live. That's where the wealthy people live. Well, still is the case, I suppose. And, and he said, what happened was that, that you, the boss man, unfortunately, usually, in that type of society, they lived on the top. The servants, now you'd think the servants would be down in the bottom and the bowels. Oh, no, they lived in the middle and their wife lived in the bottom. That's a sign of the pecking order of Roman society, which thankfully the gospel challenges and replaces. And one of the reasons it was like that, we, we were told, and this person who was a guide, I'm not necessarily a professing Christian, they were just a guide, told us. One of the reasons was because obviously the master wanted access to the servants, because the servants actually were more important, because they actually did the work. But even more than that, you see, you only, if you were the master, went with your wife in a sexual way when you wanted to have children. When you didn't want to have any kids, what you did was you serviced or were serviced by the servants. And quite often, in fact, more often than not, if you were the master, it was a boy or a man servant that you went with. You chose. You went down a road. You explored things. And your wife, she was kept for high days and holidays. And it's that context of choosing, exploring, delighting that Paul speaks so forcibly about here. And so he ends that section by saying, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. He speaks about human beings carrying within their body the consequences of their actions. I'm simply going to leave that lying and for you to think about that. And so I would suggest this morning as a close that this is a very, very insightful comment on 21st century Britain. We read that sad story at the beginning of that fellow, John Ayers. Can I read the last paragraph as I close? Only towards the end, the lady journalist says, only towards the end did poor John Ayers admit he was not invincible, that he wished he had taken the vaccine. Our immortality moment shouldn't come as we're fitted to a ventilator in an ICU unit. Let me read that again. Only towards the end did poor John Ayers admit he was not invincible, that he wished he had the vaccine. Our immortality moment shouldn't come as we're fitted to a ventilator in an ICU unit. Oh, my friends, the prayer, the cry of every single one of us here this morning is that by the Spirit of God, that immortality moment, that awareness of the fragility of life, that awareness of the lies and the deception and the peer pressure and everything else that we have had surrounding us and determining what to do, that our eyes are open to that 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 moment comes to us, no, not when we're lying on our deathbed, but comes to us in the here and now. God, the God who in Jesus Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, that that reality of God would break into the human heart, that the deceptions of the evil one would be seen for what they are, murky, destructive, 
evil, destructive ways, the delight and pain might promise pleasure, but lead to death. And how many sin-sick souls today brought to an end choose how to escape from it, not by turning to the gospel, but by committing suicide. That is the challenge of our contemporary society. That's the sadness and the sorrowness of the reality of our society. And today, as in first century Rome, we need to say with Paul, we are not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone, anyone, whatever their orientation, whatever they've done, whatever their problems have been, however they've been used or abused or anything else, the gospel brings the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes. Is that not a message that our society needs to hear? In 2021, I trust that we believe it is. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm very conscious this morning that this is a difficult passage perhaps for some of us. Not for all of us, but for some of us. Some of the things we've explored and some of the things we've hinted at and suggested perhaps are going to take time to think through and dwell upon. But we thank you for your word, which is sharper than a double-edged sword and which pierces through so much of the distortion of truth and the deception of lies and reveals the holiness and the mercy of God. So by your Holy Spirit, continue to teach us and enable us to think the truth of this word through in the realities of our life and our living in this day and in this generation. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's sing together a closing hymn. A hymn that reminds us of our calling to be bearers of light in the midst of the darkness. A hymn that calls us and invites us to share that light in word and indeed the earth was dark until you spoke, then all was light and all was peace, yet still, O oh God, so many wait to see the flame of love released. And we'll stand to sing. Let's say the words of the grace together. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore.